Hello and welcome to Holmes, Gordon, and the Watson Fevers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. This is episode three. When we left off at the end of the second episode, I was talking about Mr. Borden. And next to Lizzie, he's the most important person in this case, in this story. The family revolved around him. Even though he was not a dynamic personality, he still dominated the family primarily because he was the one that made all the money, had the money, and made the decisions about how to spend the money. And money was the center of the friction in that home, like it is probably in many homes. Let me talk about his relationship with his daughters, Emma and Lizzie. Both of these women had lived with him throughout their entire lives. Neither one had ever had a serious relationship, at least to our knowledge. And that that may change when we get into the Holmes material. We may find something different. But as far as the community knew, as far as Mr. Borden knew, neither daughter had ever been seriously involved with a man. Neither one had gotten anywhere close to married. The two sisters had limited educations. Lizzie's was more limited than Emma's. Mr. Borden had paid for Emma to go away to Wheaton Seminary, which was some kind of boarding school. I guess it had a religious connection. That's why it was called a seminary. But it was sort of a finishing school, boarding school, junior college, some combination of those three things. And she went there, I think, for three or four semesters towards the end of high school. And that was fairly expensive. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was more than your average American at that time could have afforded. Lizzie dropped out of high school. She dropped out either during 10th grade or after 10th grade, and she never finished high school. I don't know if they had GEDs in those days. If they did, I don't think she got it. So they had limited educations. Neither one of these daughters had ever worked for money. Lizzie was involved in charitable operations, charitable organizations through the church. But neither one had ever been trained for work, done any work. And let's face it, in the late 1800s, the options available to women were limited. Very few women went into the law or medicine. I think that was virtually unheard of. They weren't allowed to vote. They couldn't serve on juries. They weren't typically executives in companies. They were, for the most part, school teachers, nurses, governesses, clerks, maybe in in a store, a bookkeeper, maybe. What's interesting to me, though, having said all that, is that during the trial, it turns out that at least two of the reporters who covered the Borden trial in 1893 were women. Also, I would note that when Lizzie died in the 1920s, her doctor, her primary care physician, was a woman. So there were the exceptions, but generally speaking, the options were fairly limited. So it's not entirely surprising that Lizzie and Emma did not have careers. It doesn't look like their father expected them to have careers. It doesn't look like he ever expected them to chip in. I don't think that was ever discussed or assumed by anybody. The problem is that because they didn't have any training and job experience, and because they weren't married and it didn't look like they ever would get married, They were entirely dependent on their father, and that if he had died poor, if he had given his money away or lost all his money and then died, I'm not sure how they would have gotten by. They probably would have had to rely on friends to help support them. They might have been able to get some kind of work, but it's difficult for me to imagine. So he's got these two daughters, these two adult daughters who are dependent on him. And what's interesting to me is that they lived with him. They were still living with him in 1892. He had enough money to set them up in their own home. 
and these two sisters were pretty close. They would have been happy to live together. In fact, after the trial, after Lizzie was acquitted, they went and bought a house together in Fall River and lived together, I think, until 1905, at which point they had some kind of falling out, split up, and either never spoke again or had almost no contact thereafter. But certainly before the murders, and for several years after, they were very close, and their father certainly could have afforded a nice house in a nicer neighborhood, maybe a smallish house. He could have given them bigger allowances. He was giving them $4 a week. He could have given them each $10, $12, $15 a week. That would not have been a huge hardship for him. And he could have given them some independence. But that never seemed to come up. It was apparently always assumed that until and unless Emma or Lizzie got married, which never happened, that they would continue to live with their father. And that after their father died, apparently everybody assumed that their father would leave them enough money so that they could live independent and comfortable lifestyles. He seemed pretty close to both the sisters, to both daughters. He seemed pretty comfortable with them. We don't know a lot about his relationship with Emma. We know virtually nothing. And we know very little about his relationship with Lizzie. We do know that he sent her on a trip to Europe, I'm sure at her request, in 1890 when she was 30, and she was away for 19 weeks. He paid for that. And when she got back, according to a family friend who told this to a reporter, while the case was pending and the newspapers were trying to get an inside story and do kind of a human interest story on the Borden family, this family friend tells a reporter about how when Lizzie got back from her European trip, it was fairly late at night. Her father and her stepmother were in bed. Lizzie was tired. She had somebody bring her steamer trunk in and Lizzie went to bed. And the next morning when her father got up, came downstairs and saw the steamer trunk, according to this family friend, he went bounding up the stairs to greet her. So that was the only only anecdote I've ever come across that showed that he had any kind of strong affection for anybody, any spontaneous show of affection. But apparently that was something that he did occasionally show towards Lizzie and perhaps towards Emma. He only wore one piece of jewelry, and that was a gold ring that he wore on his pinky, and Lizzie had given that to him. He didn't wear a wedding ring. He didn't wear any jewelry, as far as I know, that had been given to him by his wife. So that was another bit of evidence that he had a strong relationship with Lizzie. As for his hobbies and his pastimes, I don't think he had any. He didn't appear to do anything with other men. He didn't belong to any clubs that I'm aware of. The only close friend I'm aware of was Mr. Almy, who was his partner in the furniture business. And as I think I said in the first episode, apparently other than working, he seemed to just spend time at home. He might inspect his real estate. He might walk around and take a look at the rental properties. But other than that, I don't think he had any outside interests. And that was partly because his focus was on earning money, saving money, and amassing money. I talked about his fiscal discipline and how he was able to save money and take that money. And rather than spend it on something fun, he would invest it in either real estate or in the stock market. He would tell people that he had never borrowed a cent in his life, I suppose, except for whatever money his father had put up to help him start the furniture business. But other than that, he had never borrowed any money from any banks or from anybody else. Every piece of real estate he ever bought, he paid cash. That big building that he put up in a commercial block, on a commercial block in Fall River, he paid with cash. 
in order to save this money, in order to build up this fortune, he did have to be very careful with his money. There was no way around it. For instance, let's talk about the house on 2nd Street, 92 2nd Street. He could have afforded a nicer house. It wasn't a bad house. It was solid. It was reasonably big. It was in a fairly nice neighborhood. It had a yard. Everybody had their own bedrooms. It was connected to the city water system so that there was running water in the house. There was a sink in the basement where they did the laundry. There was a toilet in the basement. That was the only toilet. There was a sink in the kitchen with running water. It was not connected to the city gas lines. That may be because gas could be dangerous. If I suppose occasionally gas lines leaked and houses blew up. But it would have been nice for them to have a gas stove. They ended up cooking on a stove that was fueled with wood and coal. That was a hassle. You had to build the fire. You had to wait for the fire to get hot. And then when you were done cooking, you couldn't just turn the stove off. You had to wait for the fire to die down. And so in the summertime, that meant that the kitchen got very hot and stayed hot. In addition, even though they had running water in the house, there were no bathrooms on the first, second, or third floors. No bathrooms at all. No toilets, no sinks, except for the sink in the kitchen. At night, if they wanted to wash their face, wash their hands, they had a bowl of water and some soap and a pitcher of water. And they'd pour water from the pitcher into the bowl and they'd wash that way. They had chamber pots and they would come down and empty those in the morning. If they wanted to take a bath, I assume they had either a tin bathtub or a zinc bathtub that they kept in a closet or they kept in the cellar. They would bring it upstairs or they would bring it out. They might bathe in their bedrooms. They might bathe in the kitchen. I'm not sure, but they had to heat the water up on the stove, pour it into this portable bathtub, take the bath, heat up some more water so they could rinse themselves off. It was a hassle. So Emma and Lizzie felt that they should be living in a nicer house, a more comfortable house. Even though this house had central heat, even though it had a coal furnace, which was state of the art, there were lots of comforts that they didn't have. And that consists of things like gas and bathrooms. They put some pressure on their father to move, asked him to consider moving to a nicer home and a nicer neighborhood. And there's evidence to believe that he had agreed to do that, that sometime before his death, he had put out feelers to a real estate agent or whatever the equivalent was in those days, asking that person to tell him what kind of options he had. He probably gave this person a price range. It was convenient for him to live at 92 2nd Street because it was a five-minute or 10-minute walk at most to this heart of the city, to the heart of the business district. And he liked to go down and look at his rental properties. He liked to go to the bank. He often had to go to the post office, pick up his dividend checks, go and deposit those at the bank. He liked to talk business with the people at the bank and in the business community. He didn't need a horse or horses and a carriage. The property did have a barn, and for a long time, he kept a carriage and he kept one or two horses. But a year or two before he was murdered, he sold the horses and he decided he wasn't going to go back to that. That was an extra expense that he didn't want to pay. Horses are not like cars. You can't put a horse up on blocks and leave it for five years. They get old. This, again, is the sort of example we should look at to understand how careful he was with money. This is the thing he would think about. He would think about, how can I cut expenses? What have I been doing for the last year or two or 10 years that I no longer need to do? How can I save some money? He did not have a telephone either. And that was a luxury. 
those, I'm sure, were not cheap. Businesses had telephones. Government offices had telephones. Although Mr. Borden could have afforded a phone, he would have considered that a huge luxury. Now, let me talk about some of the stories we've heard regarding his cheapness and how he dealt with people in terms of money. I'm going to start with a true story having to do with his church. He belonged to the Central Congregational Church, which was the church that the old line wasps tended to belong to. It was where the rich people in Fall River attended church. He'd been attending it, I think, for many years. And somebody on the the church board of trustees approached him and said that the church was thinking about buying some property for some reason, and that they knew Mr. Borden had a piece of land that was undeveloped. And they asked him if he would be willing to sell it. And if so, would he quote them a price? So he told them, and the, the directors went back and took some time to think about it. And then they told him that they were going to decline that offer. They would decline to purchase that property. I don't know if the church trustees went back to him and said, will you drop the price? It doesn't really matter. The point is that he wasn't willing to sell it at the price that the church wanted. He may have felt that the church was trying to take advantage of him, meaning that they wanted him to sell the property and not make any profit on it. That that may well have been their message to him. I don't know. But he was so frustrated and irritated and angry about all this that after this potential transaction fell through, he quit the church. He quit this church that his daughters still went to, that his wife still went to, and he never went back. So that gives you some idea of how serious he could be when it came to business and how personally he could take it sometimes. Now, let me tell you a fake story about him, which you'll see in sometimes. And I don't think anybody really believes it. But the fact that this story is repeated at all is, I think, somewhat scandalous. There's a story that he was such an unpleasant businessman that he was so unscrupulous, which I don't think was true. According to this story, when he sold a coffin to somebody and he was unable to fit that corpse into the coffin, he would cut the corpse's feet off, hide them or throw them away, and then put the rest of the corpse in the coffin and try to pull a fast one on the family. I think that is ridiculous. For one thing, most family members know how tall their deceased relatives are. And if they see a coffin that's six inches too short, they're probably going to pick up on that. If he'd been caught doing this, I think it would have been the end of his career as a businessman. And you make money off coffins. This You make money in the funeral business. This is a high profit industry. If somebody happened to be on the tall side, I'm sure that Mr. Borden would have a way to get the coffin and get it fairly quickly. It reminds me of a guy that lived down the street from me some time ago who owned his own funeral business. And I remember I would walk down the street and if he was out on the porch, he'd say, hello, neighbor. I just had this suspicion that whenever he looked at me, he would think, hmm, extra long coffin, premium price. So I'm sure that when you have somebody who's unusually fat or who's unusually tall, the industry can accommodate that sized body and can charge a premium. That's my guess. There are some other stories that are partly true. There's one story that has to do with him and Dr. Bowen, who lived across the street. Two days before the murders, Mr. and Mrs. Borden got very sick, and they were up for hours vomiting. On Wednesday morning, Mrs. Borden went across the street to Dr. Bowen's and told him that she thought that they had been poisoned. She thought that some bread that they had bought from a local baker had been poisoned, or maybe their milk had been poisoned. And this was August, and Dr. Bowen explained to them that this was the time of year when people often got sick. 
at any rate, he said, this is a seasonal problem. I think you're okay. She said, well, my husband was very sick too. And Dr. Bowen said, I'll stop by and say hello and make sure he's okay. I'll come by in a little while. And he gave Mrs. Borden something to settle her stomach and she went home. And she told her husband that she'd gone to see Dr. Bowen and that he had told her he'd be coming over to check on Mr. Borden. Now, the true version of this story is that Mr. Borden was not happy with this. And he said to Mrs. Borden, if he comes over here and he thinks he's going to get a fee just for stopping in and seeing me. But the story that was circulated and that you'll sometimes read in a book is that Mr. Borden tottered over to the front door, barely able to stand, white as a sheet, opened the door and shouted across the street as Dr. Bowen approached, go away, you quack, you greedy quack. I don't need you. You're not going to get a penny out of me or something to that effect. But the truth is that Dr. Bowen knocked on the door or rang the front doorbell. He came in, he paid a short call on Mr. Borden. Mr. Borden sat up. He'd been lying down on the sofa. He sat up and said he felt pretty lousy, but he knew he'd get better. And Afterwards, Mrs. Borden said she was a bit ashamed of her husband because he had not been as friendly to Dr. Bowen as she would have liked. She said he's our neighbor. He's the only neighbor we really talked to her. And she said, you shouldn't behave that way. And then he got kind of huffy and said, well, I want to make it clear to somebody, to a doctor, that just because they come over to my house, they aren't going to be able to guilt me into giving them a fee. I'm not going to do it. And we know this happened because Lizzie told all this to her friend Alice Russell that night the night of August 3rd. And we'll get to that conversation and that visit later. There's a couple of other stories having to do with his style around money, the way he handled money. I guess there's really just one I wanted to talk about. And that is that when his father died, Mr. Borden and his sister, Mrs. Harrington, were the heirs to the estate, which was not huge, I don't believe. But one of the things that their father left was his house. And Mr. Borden, according to the version that Mr. Harrington gave to the newspapers, and Mr. Harrington did not like Mr. Borden at all, Mr. Harrington said that they agreed on a sale price, that Mrs. Harrington said, I don't want the house. And she said to Mr. Borden, buy me out, give me a fair price. And apparently they agreed on a price and they're settling up and they're about to write the final checks or whatever. And Mr. Borden says to his sister, there's a $6 water bill that we need to split because neither of us has been living in the house and it's our equal obligations to pay this. And that was technically true. But Mr. Harrington was furious because he felt that Mr. Borden was rich and that he and his wife were not. And he thought it was cheap as hell. And he thought Mr. Borden was a cheap bastard. Who knows? Maybe Mr. Borden was a cheap bastard, but this is indicative of how he often dealt with people. He was not generous. He didn't pick up the tab. But at the same time, he had the reputation of being fair. In addition to sending Emma off to school for three or four semesters and sending Lizzie to Europe for 19 weeks, he did pay for the girls' clothing, I believe, and they would get dresses made at least once a year. They'd have a dressmaker come to the house or they would go to the dressmaker's house and they'd have these custom-made dresses. He also gave them a weekly allowance, $4 each, multiply that times 30. Not a lot of money, but you can have some fun with that. He was happy to live in this house. It was perfectly fine for him. He didn't need running hot water. He didn't need a bathroom on the second floor or the first floor. In fact, he didn't even use the toilet in the basement most of the time. According to the maid, he would go out and use the outhouse. 
So I think this house, which was fairly big, fairly comfortable, had central heat, did have running water in the kitchen and in the basement, did have a flush toilet in the cellar, that this was good enough, that this was really all he wanted, that this house landed in the sweet spot between the minimum he would accept for comforts and the maximum ability to save money and invest. Before we close, I want to talk about what I consider to be some strange habits or characteristics of Mr. Borden, and I'll give you my spin on them. The first is he didn't have a will. This is a guy who's worth in today's money between $9 million and $15 million shortly before his death. He knows what he's worth. He thinks about money all the time. He knows that his daughters and his wife have had some disagreement, some strong feelings, some bitter feelings and friction over money. Five years earlier, Mrs. Borden had gone to Mr. Borden and said, my younger half-sister is looking at losing her house. She owns a half-interest in her house. Her mother, Mrs. Borden's stepmother, wanted to sell her half-interest in the house. And her daughter, who was Mrs. Borden's half-sister, couldn't afford to buy her out. And so this mother was going to sell the house, which in turn would force the daughter to take half the sale proceeds and move somewhere else. And for some reason, Mrs. Borden worried that this would leave her half-sister high and dry, that this would mean that she'd have to move into some lousy housing, some crummy house, or that she'd move far away. And so she went to Mr. Borden. She said, would you be willing to buy this half interest in the house so that my sister can stay where she is? If you buy it from my stepmother and put it in my name, my half-sister can remain there. Maybe I'll give her this half interest down the road. Maybe I won't, but I'd really appreciate it. So he did that without telling Emma or Lizzie. And Mrs. Borden did not say to him, by the way, I think it would be a good idea if you did something similar for your daughters because it's only fair or because if they find out, they're going to be unhappy. She didn't do that. So Mr. Borden buys the half interest and word gets back to his daughters and they're very unhappy about this. They go to him and they say, whatever you do for her, you should do for us. You spent $1,500 to buy a half interest in a house for someone who's not even a blood relative, and you do nothing for us. So Mr. Borden, either because he agreed that it was the fair thing to do or simply to keep peace in the house, agreed to give his daughters this house that he had inherited from his father, the house I was talking about earlier that had the $6 utility bill. So he gives them the house. And they become landlords and they each own a half interest. And eventually they get tired of being landlords. And a few months before the murders, they convince their father to buy the house back from them. He gives them each $2,500 and they deed the house back to him. This was such a problem for the daughters. This made them so angry and so worried that it was the reason that Lizzie stopped calling her stepmother mother and started to call her Mrs. Borden. And from that time on, for the five years from the time that this incident happened until Mr. and Mrs. Borden were murdered, Lizzie referred to her stepmother as Mrs. Borden. I think that the sisters were pretty worried about what their father would do. And it's possible that one of the reasons they did not ask him to set them up in another household is that they worried that they would lose all influence over him, that their stepmother would exert more and more influence over him, would convince him to, to execute a will that would leave them a token amount, leave them maybe $50,000 each, which for most people was a lot of money, but was a lot less than they would normally get. If they each got a third of his estate, they'd be looking at somewhere between one hundred and $170,000 each. But 
they were worried. I think that their stepmother might convince him to create a will where he left the bulk of his estate to her. So I think that might have been one of the reasons that they didn't want to move out. My guess is that they either knew from talking to other people or from going to their own attorneys privately without telling their father and stepmother, they may have consulted with an attorney and asked, what happens if my father dies without a will? And they would have been told, if that happens, your stepmother gets what's known as the elective share, which is, I believe, a third of the estate automatically. So they would have been told that whether their father had a will or not, their stepmother was going to be entitled to at least one third. Best case scenario would be, if their father died first, that their stepmother would get a third of the estate. The worst case scenario would be that their father would draft a will that gave the stepmother more than a third of the estate. So here we have this tension, and this tension has come to the forefront. It's come out. It's there for the next five years. As always, I appreciate you listening, and I hope that you join me next week. Until then, take care.